Everybody ready? Listen, I, I want to I introduce a special guest. If you haven't been to Passion Youth Camp, this has been, uh, what, third year? Th- fourth year. Fourth year, Pastor Payne has come and spoke to us. So I, we always do this little chant. I want to I just challenge you to do it tonight. So bring the Bring the pain. Bring the pain. Y'all give it up for Pastor Payne. Come on, can we make some noise for Jesus? Anybody love him? Anybody glad to be a youth camp? Boy, y'all wore out already. How do I get to follow Justin Anthony from last night and then Brock from today? But I'm thankful to be here. This is the fourth year running that I've been here, and I look forward to it every every summer to come in and speak in the Word of God to you guys. Anybody love the Word of God? Anybody like it? Love the Word of God. I love the Word of God, and I'm honored to be here. It's a highlight of my summer. I truly mean that. My wife is here with me, and I'm honored and blessed to have her here always. But the friendships that I share with, I call it my Eagle Heights fam. That's what I call it. I've got a lot of people that I call family, and I'm probably going to get in trouble, but I'm just going to list a few. The Dunn family, Josh and Caleb and their family, and the Anthonys and Justin and Candace and the Hart family and Carlos and his family. And then you got Justin, Sam, Faith, and Grayson and Brother Steve running the sound. And I could just go on and on, but can we give them a hand clap? Just amazing leaders, amazing leaders. If you're a staff member and you're working this week at camp, I want you to stand. Because I want, I want you to see these people. If you're a staff member and you're working this week, staff, anybody that's on staff, stand real quick. Anybody on staff this week? Camp leaders. I'm sorry. We call it staff. Camp leaders. Young people, I know, I know you know this, and interns. But to make a camp like this happen, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of planning. I wonder if we can shout real loud and give them a hand clap for everything that they've done thing that they've done all right anybody ready to get into the word of God let's go to the book of Acts chapter 28 book of Acts chapter 28 uh, trying to figure out what direction to go tonight and I really felt this because this is my this is my anthem this sermon that I'm gonna give you tonight is my motto it's what I go by does anybody know what a motto is Nike's motto is just what just do it What about Adidas? Anybody know what Adidas' motto is? You know what it is? What is it? Yep, impossible is nothing. Gatorade, what is it? Is it in you? Let's try this. McDonald's? I'm loving it. Burger King? Have it your way. Right away. So this is my motto. This message is my anthem. It's what I what I live by. So we go to Acts chapter 28. We find Apostle Paul and others shipwrecked on an island. There's some barbarous people who live on the island. But they show Paul and these people unusual kindness. They help pull them from the water, even build a fire to help them warm up. Now we pick up the rest of the story. Verse 3, and when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, There came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Does anybody like snakes? Anybody? We're going to pray right when service is over, specifically for you. I don't mean to be offensive, but the only good snake is a dead snake. And that's just the way I'm not a snake fan, so I can only imagine what Paul's feeling. He's got a snake on his hand. Verse 4, when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer. 
whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. Verse 5, and he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Verse 6, how bit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while, they just watching Paul. He's got this viper that he had on his arm. He shook it off, and they're just looking at him, and they're counting down the minutes that he's just going to pass. At any, he's just going to fall out. And when he didn't fall out, they said he was a god. And if you read it in the New Living Translation, it says the people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited a long time, everybody say waited a long time, and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their mind about what kind of man Paul was. When your haters are looking at you and waiting on you to die or waiting on you to give up on God, but you decide in your mind that this is not the end of you, young people, hear me. You can change their mind and their opinion about who you really are. So I want to talk to you just for a little while tonight on this topic, wait and see. Tap your neighbor and tell them, wait and see. Tap somebody else and tell them, wait and see. Does anybody believe there's destiny in your, on your life? Anybody believe that? That there's an anointing and a calling? Wait and see what I become. That's the mentality we have to have. The pen is truly mightier than the sword. If you're a book fanatic, you know this to be true. Does anybody like books? Some of history's most influential people were authors, impacting a changing world and political landscape with just the swipe of their pen. Writers have shaped human history, capturing some of the most important events and reflecting the culture of a changing world around us in a profound way. I looked up the top 50 books that changed the world. Politics and government, here it is, The Republic, Plato. The Rights of Man and Common Sense by Thomas Paine. On Liberty by John Stuart Mill and The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Now, I'm saddened to say that I've read none of those, but they've impacted a nation. Then there's literature that's known for creating characters and stories that have become foundational elements around the world. William Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. Then you get to Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities, and Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven, and Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer, and Huckleberry Finn, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. And I can go on and on, but simply put, they teach, influence, and alter the way we think. These books are considered so important and enlightening that they've helped the world and its people to evolve. But according to the Guinness World Records, none of them are the best-selling book of all time. None of them are the best-selling book of all time. There's only one book that stands above the rest, and it's a book of influence and power. It's like no other. It shifts the atmosphere when we read it. It's a book that is sharper than any two-edged sword. Jesus only spoke three words, three words out of this book, and the adversary when he was tempted toward the adversary, it is written, and the adversary couldn't even stay in, in, in the same realm as those three words because they were so powerful. It's alive. It's, it's the breath. It's the whisper. It's the voice of Almighty God. It's full of signs and miracles and wonders. It has changed and influenced and, and saved more lives than any other book. Does anybody know what book I'm talking about? Anybody know how powerful this book is? God's autobiography is the best-selling book of all time with over 5 billion copies sold and distributed. It's been translated more than any other book. It is said that almost one-third of the planet claims to read his word at least once a week. This proves his authorship is unmatched by any other. 
It tells a seamless story. I want you to think about this, of how God has gone to great lengths to rescue and anoint people. Nothing serves to strengthen faith as reading the various patterns which God has woven into the pages of Scripture in order to form a beautiful tapestry of how God changed people's stories. When you open the Bible, I want you to understand that it's a book full of misfits, outcasts, young and old, who God with his pen changed their story. You've got Moses who can't even speak speak correctly. He's got a stutter, and God says, you know what? I'm going to take him from a stutterer to a deliverer. That's powerful. You've got Gideon who's hiding in a wine press, and God, don't use me. And God says, yeah, but I've got a pen, and I've got a story for your life. I'm going to take you from wimp to warrior. Then you go from David. His own father didn't even bring him before the prophet to be anointed king. And God said, I'm going to take you from the forgotten to the greatest king to ever live. The one that would kill Goliath, the giant. Legion was possessed by evil spirits. And we find his story when Jesus steps on that island. And this man possessed by spirits falls at the feet of Jesus. And he says, please, sir, change my story. And God began to pin those demons out of his life. And he gave him his right mind and empowered him to do good things. I'm glad to know that there's a book where God takes his pen and he writes people into better parts of life. And he gives them a better story than what they would have had otherwise. God stepped into their story and changed their plight into his plight. To his plot, and guess what? He's still writing. Anybody believe that God is still writing in this place? Paul said, I look to him, the author and the finisher of my faith. He doesn't just start a story, he finishes it. Hear me tonight. He has unlimited ink and paper for your story. He just needs someone to give him control of the pen. Let him write something special. My goal is tonight is for every young person to leave this place knowing that God has something special for your story. It will be a biography of wisdom and grace. It will be the best decision you ever made is when you say, God, I don't want to write my story anymore. I want to surrender to you and I want you to do something great in my life. Greater than I ever imagined. God, I know I don't feel qualified, but when I give myself to you, God, when I give you the pen, when I say enough is enough, because when God writes our lives, there are never mistakes. You need to write that down. There are never mistakes when God writes our lives. Just movements to bring us closer to him. Every turn that he writes into your or my story is right. Whether we view it as right or not, every heartache, every pain, every stumbling block, God says, I can use that for my glory, but you've got to give me access to the pen in your life. Every twist of the plot is for the best. Every new character, unexpected event is the tool of his grace. Each new chapter advances his purpose. But here's what you have to decide. Do you want to hold the pen to your own story? Do you want to author your own story? Or do you want to say, God, I need you to take complete control of my life? Because you've got a decision to make. Y'all are young, 12 years of age, maybe a little older. You're at a point in life to where you've got to make a decision. Are you going to completely give it to God? And that means that everything revolves around God. That doesn't mean that you got to go home and change your lifestyle completely. That just means when you get home, let God become the center of that lifestyle. and Let everything else revolve around him. Because if you do, he'll mess up your plans. He'll mess your narrative up. You give him control of your life, he'll change your whole future. You'll be like, God, how did I end up here? And he said, you trusted me with the pen. That's why you are where you are. 
Just look at Elisha. Anybody know who Elisha is in the Bible? My boy is plowing with a yoke of oxen and is appreciating a normal day. He's whistling. Best whistle I got right there. Sipping on a glass of brisk sweet tea with cane sugar. Taking care of his to-do list. He wore his favorite overalls that day. Favorite straw hat. Not knowing that God was about to turn the chapter on his story. Former Elisha is just enjoying the usual, but then something happened that changed the atmosphere and got his attention. This old prophet named Elijah walks up. And literally when he walks up to Elisha, he's got a command from God. And he takes this mantle and he brushes it on the back of Elijah's, Elisha's shoulders. Prophets were known for wearing mantles as a sign of their calling from God. The mantle was an indication of his authority and responsibility as God's chosen. Elisha was not confused as to what Elijah was doing. The putting on of this mantle made his election clear. And Elisha knew his story would never be the same. At this moment, the plowman knew what what had taken place. It didn't demand a discussion. He knew what the mantle meant. Elijah threw down. Elijah threw down that mantle on Elisha, and he pulled it back off of him. He said, you can't have it yet. But Elisha knew that he had to get rid of some things in order to follow that mantle. Now, I can preach for a little while on that because when God begins to call us to more, there'll be some things in the relationships we can't bring with us into the next chapter of our lives. If they're not benefiting your call and your walk with God, then maybe you need to go ahead and turn the chapter on that friendship if they're pulling you back out of the will of God. Some storylines have to end in this chapter for you to go to the next. And if you try to live in chapter 3 when God wants you in chapter 5, hear me, young person, you will be miserable. You, somebody, somebody's got to hear me. You're still trying to date someone that was a part of chapter 3, but they're not supposed to be a part of chapter 5. And that's why y'all fight all the time. And that's why you're never content in the relationship because God is calling you for more. But the person you're dating isn't ready for the more that God is calling you to. Some friendships that have defined your life to this point may have to go if God is the author of your story. Some of you are still treating your devotional time with God like you're in chapter 3 when God is calling you to do more. In chapter 5, you can't spend 10 hours playing video games, 12 hours on social media, and 8 hours watching every season of your favorite TV show on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime. You can't do it because God is calling you to the next chapter on your life. But I want you to get this and hear this clearly. God will impress on you to deal with some things that may not be sin, but they are paperweights trying to hold you back in the storyline. Not sin. We ask the wrong questions. A lot of us like to base sin on what religion is. Religion religion doesn't get to dictate what sin really is. You know what sin is? Let me give you a brief definition. Sin is knowing to do good and doing it not. So if you know you ought to be praying and reading the Bible and you're not doing, could that be sin? But we've made sin more about outward We've made sin more about, well, I can't do that, I can't go there. What about, what about the things we're not doing for God when he's trying to give us more? What if God's challenging you every day you get up to open up your Bible? What if God's telling you go to, go to youth pastor Justin and tell him, I want to do something at the church? What if God is calling you to do more, but you keep giving, you keep wanting to take the pen back and saying, God, I'm not ready for that chapter just yet. But watch what Elisha does. He burns his plowing equipment. He barbecued the oxen. He couldn't go back to his old way of life because he destroyed the time machine that would take him back 
We have to get rid of some things that are hindering us from advancing in the story. And there are some things you need to delete instead of logging out of every once in a while. And just because you can go online and delete the history or the conversation, when are you going to delete the time machine that keeps taking you back to that chapter of your life? God, you're calling me for more, but I, I know that I've, I've got this, and I can log in here, and I can, I, can, I can chat, and I can do this, and I know I shouldn't be doing that, and maybe I'm not even doing anything wrong, but it's consuming me, God. It's consuming my emotions. I wonder how many people are liking my social media page more than I'm wondering how much you like the lifestyle that I'm living right now, God. They're, they're consuming me, but I know you have so much more in this chapter of my life. It was the end of Elisha the former, and it was beginning of Elisha the prophet. And we read that Elisha rose and followed Elijah. And everybody say, became his servant. What does became mean? Elijah, Elisha wasn't dating a new dimension. He wasn't flirting with it. He wasn't testing out the waters. He wasn't satisfied with the touch of power that made him feel good, but didn't transform his life. He wanted more. And the Bible says he became Elijah's servant. He became. You know why the word says he became? Because it's harder to unbecome something once you become it. But you've got a lot of people in the church that are not becoming Christ-like, and they're not becoming Christians. You know what they're doing? They're just playing the role of Christianity. They never had an identity change. He wanted more, so he became. He didn't walk with Elijah for a little while, get tired, and then go back to his old way of life. Plan B was removed from the equation. His only option was moving forward with Elijah. Because when you become something, it's challenging to unbecome it. But when you do something, you can stop doing it at any time you want. You can stop doing church. You can stop, you can stop serving the kingdom of God. But when you become a Christian and you become a follower of Christ, that means it's going to be hard to unbecome that because it's in your DNA now. Now you can't go to bed without thinking about God. Now you, when you wake up, you're thinking about, man, I wonder what's going on at the church. I wonder what message is going to be preached. And Elisha's encounter with the mantle didn't just sustain him for a season, but stayed with him. It, it, it went with him everywhere that he went. And can I tell you, if this is just something you're doing, young person, if you're coming to youth camp and you're just doing youth camp, you're having a great time and I'm for all of that, but you don't become what Christ wants you to become before you leave here and you don't take it with you, awaken did you no good. If you just had an experience and a moment, but it's not a part of your story now, we think that mantles are inherited in moments. You know, Elisha didn't get that mantle that day that that old prophet rubbed on his back and said, look, I want you to have this one. He didn't get it. It was, I think, five chapters, maybe a little bit longer than that later, that that prophet was taken up and that mantle fell and he picked it up. But what if Elisha would have got tired and said, you know what, I don't want to follow God anymore. I don't. What's the point, man? I went to Awaken Camp, and it was powerful. Then I went back home. Nothing changed in my life. Everything stayed the same. I didn't make any changes. I just kept doing me and figuring out me and, 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 and just doing what I wanted to do. And you just you stopped going. Then Awaken did you no good. But when we get to the point and we understand that mantles are transferred in journeys, not moments. I don't have a moment with God at the altar and then go home and say, you know what, I'm not changed, I'm no different. No, I have a moment and I take that moment with me. And that moment becomes a part of my storyline. It becomes a part of my journey. I never forget. I went, I went to this, this minister's meeting as a young man. And this, this guy's speaking and I'm sitting there. Man, I have no clue what's going to happen in my life. I'm trying to figure it out. I think I may have been married and he looks at me and he says, look, God's going to turn the lights on on you. He said, but what you do in the dark is going to be manifested when the lights come on. And that word shaped my life. 
Because it's not, to me, it's not just about speaking in front of you great young people. My walk with God has got to be bigger than that. It's got to be a journey. When I go home, if I can stand in front of you and preach and you can say, Brother Josh did an okay job, he was all right, and I go home and my wife and kids can't look at me and say that I'm a Christian, then I didn't become who Christ wanted me to be. And you can come to Awaken Youth Camp and you can fool everybody here, but when you go home and there's nobody around, have you become something different for Christ? What have you become? Elisha didn't know what God was doing. He just answered the call and pursued with a wait-and-see mentality. He knew that something had changed in his storyline. I want you to write this on your paper because I see you write, God designed you to be a somebody. He designed you to be a somebody. And don't you dare write a critical review too early in the process because guess what? You are not a Rotten Tomato critic. You don't get to decide if you're a failure or not. Only God does. Your story is still unfolding. So you can't judge your story too soon. There's going to be cliffhangers. There's going to be to be continued moments. There's going to be moments of frustration. But you get back up and say, God, I've become something and I'm not going to unbecome it. Become something. I'm not going to unbecome it. I'm not going to write, I'm not going to write a bad report about my life. I'm not going to say that I'm a failure. I'm going to put a semicolon so the chapter will continue. And I can tell you this. Culture teaches us to view someone by scenes. Anybody anybody got Snapchat? Snapchat. We got three. Brother Steve said he got Snapchat. (laughs) Steve, keep it up. I'm giving me Snapchat when I leave here. Brother Steve got it. You got Instagram stories, man. You You got all this social media that shows you a scene of somebody's life. And you get on there, and they look like, bro, they got it all together. Hashtag unicorn. (laughs) Hashtag duck lips. Quit. Guys, quit. Duck lips is not a thing. Stop. And if somebody sends you a picture with duck lips, you don't need to hang around them anymore. It needs to be over immediately. Stop. And we look at scenes of people's lives, and we're like, man, they got it together. But you really don't know the story. And sometimes people will let you into a scene of their life, and, and, and you'll see that, and you'll be like, they got it figured out. But you don't, know, you don't know the story. And sometimes people will step into a season of your life and think they know your story because they viewed a scene. But if you stop at some of the scenes in Joseph's story, he would have died in a pit that his brothers put, in him, put him in. But because he continued on, guess what? He came out of slavery. He came out of prison because that wasn't the whole story. It was just a scene, and he ended up in a palace. If you stop at the scene, three Hebrew boys burn up in a furnace. Then you turn the page. Them boys come walking out. They didn't even smell like smoke. They didn't even smell like what they've been through. If you stop at a scene, Jesus utters his final words. It is finished. His disciples run and hide. They don't know what's going to happen. And if you stop at the scene, you miss the greatest comeback story of all time. 
according to November 2001 Sports Illustrated. They called it the greatest comeback of all time because three days later where they buried him wasn't the end of the story. And he walked out of a tomb and said, I'm going to empower people to get out of their situation and their tomb because if I stay here, they'll never get out. So three days later, he walks out the tomb and powers a church and says, you know what? They can have a wait and see mentality and they don't have to stay down and they don't have to stay out. There can be a semicolon in their story. There can be an ellipsis, a two be continued moment. I found this out. I thought it was amazing. What does people do when they win? But what they do with their hands? What does people do when they, if they lose? Like if they're down and out and they're losing, what do they do? Scientists did a study, and they watched blind athletes celebrate and lose. And blind athletes who never, ever seen any other athlete because they're blind. I don't know if you caught that part of the story. <laughs> Never seen any other athlete raise their hand in victory or slump their so shoulders in defeat. When they won, a blind athlete put his hands in the air. When he lost, because it's been hardwired in our DNA that if we lose, our hands go down. But if we win, our hands go up. And I'm seeing too many young people that are being defeated by culture and they're slouching with their hands down. That's why the Bible says lift up holy hands. I want God to know that I am victorious and my story is going to continue and it shall be written. I'm not defeated. I'm not out. I'm not going to give up just because things get hard. I'm going to continue to push and say wait and see. I'm a competitive guy. Anybody competitive in here? Why don't you take that into your Christian walk? Because there's going to be people that's going to say, you're a nobody, you're a nothing, you'll never be a nothing, you don't talk right. Guys, I don't know if you know this, I don't pronounce my words correctly, but I ain't scared. I don't say things the right way. I mix up my words. They get me, I'm a rapper. You didn't even know it. They just, get, they just get all tied up sometimes, and then I make up words, and I don't even tell nobody I made them up. Because if they don't go look it up, I'm, I'm good. I made that up. Hey, and every word in that dictionary was made up at some point. So I'm writing, I'm writing my own words. I mean, I don't speak right. And I'm going to tell you my story when I close. But I had people say, he ain't never going to preach. And they probably still saying that. He probably shouldn't preach. But they don't determine my story. There's going to be people that's going to look at you and be like, man, you don't preach like so-and-so or talk like so-and-so. You know why? Because you're not so-and-so. You're you. You're not anybody else. Be you and be the best you that you can be. Almost done. So we pick up my boy Paul. 13 epistle, epistles, probably more, but none of them match the authorship of his story because God was writing Paul's story. And if you read it, man, it's extraordinary. Miracles by Paul. Literally, they would take, they would take parts of his apron and they would anoint it and they would carry it to the sick and the disease left them and evil spirits fled out of people. And we see Paul's story having great moments. But we also see my boy facing a lot of opposition. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Now, I, I know we live down south and, and Livingston and Tangible Parish and all that. But there ain't nobody ever threw a stone at me. Because I ain't going to lie to you. That's it. That's over the line. You don't throw a stone, you're going to catch his hands. That's what you're going to do, you know. We don't throw stones. But back then, they was throwing stones at my boy. They're beating him with rods. He said, once I was pelted. What does pelted even mean? Three times I was shipwrecked. Why did you get on the ship three times if you've already been shipwrecked twice? He said, I spent a day and a night in the open sea. And we pick up Paul's story in one of these shipwrecked moments. 
Paul had warned the sellers and those in charge. He said, don't set sail. There's danger ahead. And Angel warned them, 276 people on board. Those who had made it to shore were wet and miserable, according to verse 2. And the natives come out. They were barbarous people. This means they were rednecks. And they come out. They were rough looking. So go look it up in the Greek. That's what it means. Redneck, barbarous, same thing, same kind of people. Had jacked up chariots with flow masters. They was rolling in. <laughs> Scary looking people. Can't sleep at night because rednecks driving up and down my road, revving up their engine. Ain't nobody listening. Turn it off. Too loud. But these, these, these barbarous people, they run out and they start pulling these people out and they pull Paul out. And after they get them on shore, they build this fire. And after the fire started, it needed more fuel to keep burning. And Paul wasn't going to sit back and enjoy the fire. He wanted to participate. And this is what I believe. I believe that Paul would have never got snake bitten if he would have just been a critic and complained about how they built the fire. If my boy Paul would have just sat there and been like, look, built plenty of fires before. And you should have did it this way. The big log should have went on first. And the sm- if he would have been a critic, he would have never got bit. If he would have talked about how worship should have been, how the praise team should have been, how the speaker, how Eagle Heights should run, how Passion Youth Ministry should run, and critique everything about it, he would have never got bit. He would have been all right. But the moment that he looked and said, you know what, that fire needs more fuel, and he goes to pick up a log to make the ministry better. Because anytime you gather a mantle, you always gather a serpent. If you don't want opposition in your life, don't try to do anything for God. Just be a critic. And when he goes and grabs a log to put on the fire, the Bible says the viper that was, that was just minding its own business rose up and bit him and latched on to his arm. Anybody know what the adversary is called? Anybody? Serpent. A viper. A snake. Snakes are cold-blooded. This means they don't have the means to regulate their own body temperature like warm-blooded creatures. So when it's cold, do you know what snakes do? They hide or find a place that is warm, and that's where they rest. Watch this. Anytime you start doing something for God, the adversary can't create what we feel here today. He can't. But he can't sing like y'all just sung. He was the keeper of the glory. He lost that responsibility. He forfeited. He made a bad decision. He don't get to keep the glory anymore. We keep the glory now. We're protectors of the glory of God. We're the ones that he inhabits the praises of his people. You know why he inhabits the praises of his people? Satan ain't his people no more. So he inhabits our praise. You know what Satan does? He rolls up to awaken youth camp to find a warm place to hide. Pull up a chair. Kick back. I know so-and-so has been struggling, and there's a, there's a warm anointing that's there at Awaken Youth Camp, and he pulls up a chair because he can't create what you feel. And you've got to make a decision in your life. Are you going to let him hang around in the warm environment that you've created for God to dwell? Or are you going to say, no, not today, Satan? Paul's ministry stirred up the viper. I want, I want that to be said about me. I battled some things with my son the last two and a half years. I want it to be said that my ministry stirred up the viper. If my ministry never brings opposition, then I'm not doing something right. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, the viper came out because of the heat fastened on his hand. And I want you to notice Paul's reaction to the snake bite. You know what he does? He doesn't go look and say, look, the snake bit me. He doesn't pass out. Or fake pass out. 
He doesn't talk about how bad it is. He doesn't talk about, man, I told y'all we shouldn't have came here. Y'all got me on the boat. Y'all brought me over here, and now I'm snake bitten. Paul doesn't say any of that because he doesn't want to be a victim, and he doesn't want to give the viper any credit. Young person, let me give you this advice. Don't talk about how bad it is. Just talk about how good God is. No matter how much opposition you got, just talk about the goodness of God. Do you know what the natural antidote for snake venom was? You know why Paul wasn't worried about dying? For many years, scientists have explored ways to develop antidotes for the poisons of snakes. Years ago, they used horses, but today many places use lambs or sheep to develop these anti-venoms that neutralize the effects of snake venom. They would inject a lamb with specified quantities of venom, and the blood of the lambs would immediately go to work producing antibodies to combat the venom. Watch this. And they proved this. When they, when they literally put that venom in, 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 into that lamb, what should have paralyzed that lamb, something in the blood of the lamb turned it into protein, and what should have killed the lamb actually strengthened the lamb. And then they would extract the blood of the lamb. And guess what that would become? Anti-venom that they would formulate and put into people that was snake bitten. Can I tell you why the adversary can't kill you? Is because there's royal blood flowing through your veins. There's already an anti-venom that flows through my veins. The adversary doesn't get to decide the outcome of my life. He doesn't. He doesn't. I read a story about a one in six billion miracle. She's a one in six billion miracle. Her name was Demi Lee Brennan, Sydney, Australia. She's a living, walking miracle, 15 years old when she contracted a virus that destroyed her body's liver and immune system. Demi Lee was put on a liver transplant list. An acceptable liver was found, and the transplant was performed, and two remarkable things happened. First, her blood type changed from her old O negative to the donor's O positive. She took on the blood type of her donor, Second, somehow the stem cells from the donor's liver made their way into her bone marrow. And when they got there, those stem cells transformed her immune system in such a way that she became immune to every virus faced and conquered by the liver donor. And because of this, she didn't need to take any immunosuppressants for her body to accept the donated organ. Why? Because the donor's immune system had become her own. And the battles won by the donor now was battles won by her because she was a recipient of the donor. Young person, don't worry about what the adversary throws at you. Christ said, I've already overcame it all, and I've given you a transplant. You're going to be all right. Come on, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right, Paul also knew this. Musicians, you get ready. Paul also knew this. He knew. Jesus told him, or God told him, he said, look, you got to go to Rome and witness just like you are in Jerusalem. He knew. He knew he had more work to do for God. And the spectators of this event waited for Paul to drop dead. They're watching him. The natives are watching. And they're like, man, surely this is going to kill him. And they look at him and they say, you know what, something's up. He's shipwrecked, he's cold, he's tired, and now he's snake bit. You know what they said? They said he must be a criminal and God doesn't want him to live. He must be a Paul, the apostle Paul must be a criminal. God doesn't want him to live. And they're watching him and they're watching this snake bite on Paul's arm. And they're saying he's a criminal, man. He's, 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 they were haters. They was expecting him to die. They didn't offer him any help. They wanted to give an explanation for why Paul was bit. But what if I told you that Paul wasn't bit because he was doing something wrong? Paul was bitten because he was doing something right. And 
they looked and they looked and they looked and they waited for him to swell and they looked waiting for him to fall dead and they looked and they looked and God was giving them a live scene from the biography of Paul. And watch this. When he doesn't die, you know what they say? This is what they say. He's not, Paul is not a criminal. He's not somebody that God wants to kill. He is a God. And they reference Paul's life to a God. And watch what happened on that island. Acts 28, verses 8 through 9. That region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of fever. Paul went in to him and prayed and laid his hands, went to him and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when it was done, the rest of those people on the island who were deceased, who had diseases and were sick, who was on the verge of being deceased, were brought to Paul and they were healed. All because Paul said, wait and see, I will not die from a snake bite. Wait and see. Wait and see. This won't kill me. It's only going to make me better. It won't end my life. It's only going to make it better. I've never done this in four years, but I'm going to do it tonight. My story isn't like most. I was raised in a great home with amazing parents, but church wasn't a priority. So I felt a call of God on my life at a young age, but I didn't know what to do with it. Sports weren't just an activity in my life. It was a God. I had no clue of the tug of war that would take place in my life because I felt the calling of God. I was like Paul. I knew there was more. I went to a youth event at the age of 12, and God just filled me up, and I felt the calling of God, and my plans changed. I was very inconsistent, though. I was being pulled in every direction. I even got a picture of me when I was 15 years old. That, was, that hairstyle wasn't style back then. It really was. But I was 15 in this picture. I got my driver's license. I felt such a calling to preach that I quit every sport. Because in my eyes, either I was going to do something for God, I, I couldn't put the two together. Nobody ever told me that I could. I even had the opportunity to speak a few times, but that didn't last long because inconsistency was my pattern. I was up, down. Eventually, I started getting into some trouble. I even transferred schools for a little while because I was, I was just running with the wrong crowd. I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Different school, but same battles. The crowd wasn't the issue. It was me. I had a battle waging in my life. I knew God was calling me. I remember crying myself asleep at night. I felt like my world was collapsing. I struggled with OCD. Anybody know what OCD is? Obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, usually when somebody's clean, we call them OCD. It's not really what OCD is. I had it so bad that if I walked into a room through a door, I had to leave out through that same door. I felt like my world would end. If I, write, if I wiped my left shoe during a basketball game twice, I had to wipe my right shoe twice. Everything in my room was in complete detail. I didn't know what OCD was, but I would lay in my bed and I would cry myself to sleep at night saying, God, what is wrong with me? I was just in turmoil. My world was in turmoil. And I'm 15 years old. It was spiraling out of control. But now I realized that God was giving me these things so that I can learn how to trust him with my story. At 16, I remember I saw this girl at this church. Her dad passed her down the road. Her name was Tiffany. I said, you know what? My, my parents don't go to church. I'm going to go check out their church. And I went, and, and there she was in all her glory. So needless to say, I followed her and then God to Little River Church to be a part of that. The roller coaster ride didn't stop, though. It was up, down. I went in, 
I went back to playing ball, and I'm not against sports. Matter of fact, I believe sports can be a good thing for you. You just got to keep Christ at the center of it. Unless it takes away from God being your author, hey, have a good time. My senior year, I was MVP of our district. All parish, all state in basketball. I've got a picture of my two friends, two of my closest friends in high school, Brandon and Paul. This was our last basketball game at St. James High School. What do I do now? Do I try to go walk on to college? Made a decision to go to this college campus ministry, Jackson College of Ministries, for a short while. It didn't work out because I was still inconsistent. But I came home to help my local church. But this is what gets tough. This is where, where it gets me. Through every scene of my story, there was naysayers and people laughing. I remember, I remember I went to this guy's house one time. I knocked on his door. I had a lot of respect for him. He was an older man. I said, look, I'm a preach. And he called his wife in there. I'll never forget, I'm standing at the front door, and he calls his wife in there, and she's like, hey, he was like, come listen to what Josh just said. Josh said he's going to preach one day. And they laughed. They laughed. I don't know why they were laughing, but they laughed right there. And then, and then there was people that when me and my wife were dating, they was like, look, if you marry that boy, that's going to be the biggest mistake you've ever made in your life. Somebody even told her that she was a rose and I was a rose petal. What? rose petal wasn't a rose petal once a rose what, what are you talking about but they were only seeing scenes of my life they were only seeing the moments that I was struggling they didn't know my heart I'll never forget I finally we get married I become a student pastor and eventually assistant pastor but more scenes her dad dies at 58 he's the pastor of the church he was my father-in-law we bury him on a Saturday they ask me I'm 30 years old do you want to pastor Little River I don't know I, I don't know if I do or not so I walk in, they elect me pastor. I preached 20 funerals my first year, just more scenes to the story. I was so depressed and insecure until one day I had a dream. And God spoke to me, and this is what he said. He said, quit judging the story by some of the scenes and trust me to write the rest of your life. And I did. I'll never forget that first year I found me a place and I would pray. And I would say, God, here's the pen of my story. I don't know what you're going to do. And I can tell you, God has blessed me. I've got a picture of my family. My son, Brantley, who is nine. My daughter, London, who is 13. My wife, Tiffany, who's 21. And then I've got a picture of the church I pastor. That's Brother Joel Steen. That really ain't me. But here's a real picture of it. It's not the biggest church in the world. But you know what? I get to pastor and lead people. I get to come to Eagle Heights Youth Camp because I didn't give up on the story. But I remember, and I said all that to share this with you. I remember me and my wife were dating. I'm not, I type everything. My handwriting is terrible. You can't read my handwriting. I type my journal. I've got a day one journal on my computer. I can't write. But I used to write my wife letters. And I would say, roses are red, violets are blue. Here's a kiss from me to you. I'm helping somebody right now. Well, you're going to leave here with a girlfriend. I mean, I had my, she couldn't read my handwriting, but still she felt how much I loved her. That's, that's saying a lot. But I remember I wrote her a letter, and she framed it. She found it. And don't try to read all of it. But I wrote her a letter, and I remember we were dating I was in high school. I was going through one of these seasons of up, down, didn't know whether I wanted to live for God, didn't know what I wanted to do. People saying he'll never be a preacher. But I wrote her a letter, and you can't really see in there. 
But there's a part in that letter that says, I promise you, I will preach a youth camp one day. I will. Eagle Heist didn't ask me yet. I didn't get to preach our local youth camp, but I told her, I wrote my future. I said, I will get to preach a youth camp one day. God will bless it. I've just got to stay in the story. And can I tell you, don't put the next picture up just yet. First, let me say this. Before anybody else ever opened a door for my ministry to speak to young people, Pastor Josh Dunn and the staff did. And tonight, from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you for that. Because you fulfilled a part of my story that God told me a long time ago. Four years I've been coming here getting to talk to you guys. And then last year I got to stand on the platform and preach to 4,000 young people at our local conference. I was the main speaker for four nights. I spoke every night. What would happen, young person, if I would have got discouraged and walked away because of a season in my life but I've come to tell you today, you were born for this, and you were born to be a world changer. You were meant to be here, and this moment is yours. Hear me, young person. Every tear you cried, every desperate prayer you pray, God's going to use it for your advantage. And God promises us that nothing is wasted. And I want to tell you right now, there's nothing so broken that God don't know what to do with it. He, he knows how to heal it. There's no part of your story that's going to confuse God. My mom and dad divorced as soon as me and my wife got married. Scene, it was a scene, it was scene after scene that I was looking and that viper was hanging on my arm. And I was like, man, what am I going to do? And I would try to show people, I'd be like, man, look at this viper. i tell anybody, listen, hey, my mom and dad divorced. I was married. Hey, nobody ever supported me. I never had anybody really get behind me and say, you can be ministry. I would tell everybody until one day God says, stop talking about it. Nobody cares. All that matters is, are you going to do what I've called you to do? And I've come to tell every young person in here, I don't know your story. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your battle. You may have some OCD issues like I had. My wife helped me overcome those because she wouldn't even fold my clothes anymore because I'd refold them. She just throws them in a basket and says, you deal with it. But I don't know what your story is. But I can tell you this. Are you going to give him the pen? Are you going to make up in your mind this week that no matter what comes, no matter what goes, that he's got the pen to your story? And I promise you, he'll write things into your life that blow your mind. I drive home into my driveway and I cry because I never could have guessed that God had, would have given me what he's given me. A beautiful family, a beautiful home, a place to preach the gospel. Open up doors with great people like this, with my Eagle Heights fam. But I, I'm not here to talk about me tonight. I want to ask you, what are you going to do with the pen of your story? What are you going to do to stand with?